Well, Father, we are told that, uh, in fact, Jesus told us that your Father knows what you need before you ask him. We, we are grateful that that is true. A lot of times we think if it is true and you already know, why would we ask? But that's why we ask. If you know what we need before we ask, it means you've got power and you've got knowledge that's unlike anyone anywhere. And that's because you are not like us. You are the creator. You are the great God. You are the God who has no beginning. You have always been. Always you have existed. We can't even get our arms around that. Everything that we're aware of has had a beginning. But not you. You have always been. You are God. And you always will be. And you know all things. And your presence is everywhere. David said, where can I go from thy spirit? We can't go anywhere where you are not there. Psalmist said, if I take the wings of the dawn, those first rays of light in the morning, light travels 186,000 miles per second. If we could strap ourselves on to one of those rays of light and ride it all day, and then get off wherever we would be in the universe you'd be there that's amazing stuff we don't think about that enough if we did if we thought about that you've always existed that you've always been that you're everywhere that you know all things that you have all power that you have all wisdom if we would think on those traits and those attributes, your goodness, your holiness, if we would think on those things, it would calm us down. It would put peace in our hearts. It would make a difference in how we view our present circumstances and the things that worry us about the future. This is why we study the Bible. This is why we spend time with it because it is the only book where you have revealed yourself to us. So we do Bible study. You tell us to cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. And if we really think about how you have cared for us, it'll encourage us with the present cares that we carry. You've done amazing things for every guy in this room. You've kept us alive. Some of us in here should have been dead. 
but we're not. We're here. We've seen your faithfulness in a multitude of ways, on a multitude of levels throughout the years of our lives. And yet we have things on our plate that challenge us and worry us and concern us. But when we remember who you are and that you are God, once again, it puts peace in our heart because if you've taken care of us up to this point, why would you stop now? And you've, you've promised to take care. You've said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Sometimes we walk away from you. Sometimes we forsake you. Sometimes we drift. You never drift from us. You're always there. So we keep coming back. And you never turn us away. Now these are the facts. And as we review the facts, it calms us down. The anxiety begins to dissipate. We find hope again in our hearts for whatever we're dealing with and whatever we're facing. We are not in this by ourselves. Your Father knows that you need these things before you ask. We simply say thank you. Thank you for taking care of the stuff. Thank you for doing it in the past. Thank you for doing it today. And thank you for doing it in the future. Help us to enjoy the privileges you have given us as your sons. Help us to live as though this is true, because it is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're working our way through this uh, study I did 25 years ago that turned into a book called Point Man. And if you're new here, the reason we're studying this uh, is because uh, in all the years we've done this study, which is 13 years, 14 years, we've never studied these. I mean, we've, we've hit different sections here and there. But we've never really gone through the material in Point Man, which was kind of a foundational book uh, uh, for my life and and for all that I've done the last 25 years, which is, uh, I mean, I never expected to be in men's ministry, but I've been doing it full time for 25 years. Uh, God, God uh, loves men. Um, He made men. He likes men. He likes men to be men. He likes men to be masculine. He likes women to be feminine. Uh, Male and female, he created them. Uh, This whole thing comes from him. And we live in a culture and we live in a world that is completely turned upside down. And so we have a lot of confusion about manhood. We have a lot of confusion about womanhood. We have a lot of confusion about Sexual identity. You may have read this week that I think it's is it Facebook that now when it comes to when you mark gender, you've got you don't have two options. You have multiple options. Multiple. That's how far gone we are. Um, multiple options. We are so far away 
from, from how God intended things to be. And the fact of the matter is, is that only the gospel sets us right. Only the gospel recalibrates us. Only the gospel restores our hearts to the place that God wanted them to be in the first place. But this thing called sin came into the world. And sin did a lot of destruction, a tremendous amount of destruction. Um, Christ came to redeem a people. He took our sin upon him. This is the gospel. Uh, Our sins can be forgiven as we trust in him alone. Um, He gives us new hearts. He gives us new minds. He enables us to stand legally, forensically before God the Father and be accepted into his family because of the work that Jesus did on our behalf. So when we come to know Christ, we're born again. The first time we're born, we're we're born physically alive but spiritually dead. But when we hear the gospel and when the Spirit of God regenerates us and pulls us to Christ, now we're born again. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And so now we're beginning a process of spiritual growth. We've been spiritually born, and now it's a pathway of spiritual growth. And one of the things that happens to us as men is that as we come to know the Lord and we come to understand the Scripture, and we come to get a sense of what He has in mind for us and what He wants to do in our lives, He has a work for us to do. Um, It's different for every guy, but there are some works that he has in mind for us to do uh, that are similar. Most men will be married. Most men will be uh, uh, fathers. Um, You get older in life, you'll probably become a grandfather. So this is your little civilization. This is your, um, your nation. This is, your, this, is your, this is your sphere of responsibility. It's called the family. Uh, God invented the family. If God invented the family, then he knows how to make it work. If God invented marriage, and he did, then he knows how to make it work, and he's the only one who knows how to make it work. I've made this statement in here before, weddings are easy. Anybody can have a wedding, right? And you meet this gal and you say, okay, we're going to get married. And then she gets all excited about the details and is working on it all day long. And at the end of the day, she wants to fill you in on all the details. And your job is to act interested. And you really, yeah, oh yeah, oh the ca- oh the ca- oh yeah, that's great. And the bridesmaid dresses are going to be, you don't care. Oh, and the cake's going to be lemon meringue. You don't give a rip. Oh, and let me show you the flowers. Let me show you. And you're just, oh yeah, this is great. It's not great. It's it's expensive. Hopefully, you're not paying for it. Um, if you are, you really got snowed. <laughs> but you see, and then suddenly the day's there and you're, you're suddenly there. 
and you got family and you got friends and you got the rented tux and it goes by pretty fast. Weddings are easy, marriage is hard. At a certain point in the book Point Man, I did a chapter called um, Husband and Wife Teamwork in the Marriage 747. Because so much of marriage, after you get married, after the wedding, and you get into marriage, it's just real life. And, and, and so much of it is you're just, trying to, you're just trying to keep up with everything. You're trying to pay the bills. You're trying to um, keep the relationship alive between you and your, your wife. Uh, kid comes along, then another, and another, and you know, and you're just, you're into life. And at a certain point when I wrote this, my, my kids, it was 25 years ago, so I think, um, uh, you know, Rachel was probably in, and I can't do the math, but um, she was probably middle school age, and John was probably fifth grade, and Josh was probably third grade, something like that. And life was nuts. When you have young kids, when you have small kids, life is insane. But you, you, it's all you can do to breathe. It, it's all you can do. Uh, first of all, there's never any quiet because you've got all these kids and, and you've got stuff going on and, and every time you turn around, one of the kids is sick and you're at the doctor and then they've got to go see a specialist and they've got to have another test. And so they send you the bills. And I, I, when I wrote this, I remember thinking about all that we had going on in our lives and how many people were involved in our lives. And it struck me, you know what? It's like Mary and I are flying. I remember the first time I saw a 747. I was a senior in high school. I had a job parking cars at the San Francisco airport in valet parking that my dad got for me. That was a job. This is the best job I ever had. But actually, uh, my whole occupational world was downhill after I was 19. <laughs> because I'd go up to the ramp at the San Francisco airport, and I would drive uh, Mercedes. I would drive Ferraris. I would drive, I drove a Facile Vega one time car out of Spain. Uh, I, I, I remember some of the, the athletes, um, the NBA guys, they'd be catching a plane. They, I remember the Nate Thurman, big center for the uh, Warriors, uh, pulled in with a brand new CAD Fleetwood that had about 54 miles on it. And we took several laps in that thing. <laughs> then we got worried if he checked the odometer. But that was a job. That was quite a Porsche. I, I mean, I drove Porsches. I mean, that, for an 18-year-old kid, that was quite a job. And I remember the time I was coming into work, and I came in the entrance, and I was swinging around that first terminal in the back where our little area was. And as I came around, there was this monster jet. I, I, could, I, could, I, just, I couldn't even believe what I was seeing. It's the first time I had seen a 747. Um, <clears throat> and if you've ever been in a 747, there's monsters. There's still monsters. 
When I was doing this book, I started thinking about, and, and I was doing, well, I wanted to do this chapter on, on husband and wife teamwork. And, and so much of life, when you're married and you have kids, so much of life is just dealing with stuff and dealing with people. And there's always issues. And there's always a crisis somewhere. And someone is always sick. And there's always other bills that you didn't plan on. And it's always, you make all the plans you can, you try to live within your budget, and it's always insane. And there's always people that demand attention. And, and I, it struck me one time, with all the people in our lives, if you take Mary and myself, you take our three kids, uh, our kids are on sports teams, you take the coaches, you take the teams, you take the friends, you take the youth groups, you take the grandparents, you take the extended family, you take uh, the insurance agent, you take the CPA, you take the doctors, you take the dentist, you take, I'm telling you, we could fill a 747 with the people that are in our lives. Now, that may seem far-fetched, but when my daughter Rachel got married, you know, you go through the invitation list, and we had a list, and we were going to have like 200 and I think 20 people come to our house, and uh, it be an outdoor wedding. And so we had, you know, ordered the food and all that jazz. Well, we had about 260 show up. We had more people show up than were invited. And I'm still not quite sure how that worked, except here's what I know. I didn't get to eat. And neither did uh, my new in-laws, which really impressed them. They didn't get to eat. We had some people that weren't invited, I think friends of, you know, um, I think I know who they are. <laughs> but they just wanted to come. And so they came. They kind of stealthed right on in and uh, ate our food. And uh, we had more than we thought. See, I mean, I could almost fill a 747 just with who was at that wedding. That's the way life is. And you're just, and you know, you're just trying to get through life. And we go through the stages of life. Have you ever heard of the empty nest? We had the empty nest for three days. And that's no exaggeration. Because when Josh, my last one, took off, Rachel called from California and she said, Dad, I'm coming back to Texas. And I'm going to work on a master's degree. I said, great. And she said, my, my friend Gretchen, she's going to come too. I said, great. And she said, can we stay there at the house? And I said, yeah. And so, and it's great. It was pretty neat, you know? Because she was gone and we missed her. And Okay, all I'm saying is, life rarely shakes out the way that we plan it. There are always new challenges. There's always action. There's always crisis. And so much of life is... It's really like flying a 747. Um, and this is where it gets sticky. Because when you get on a plane, you've got a captain and you've got a co-captain. It, it's, it's interesting because they are both qualified to fly the plane. But uh, one of them's a captain and one of them is a co-captain. They are equals but one has been given a responsibility and has been given a, um, a position of leadership that the other one doesn't have. 
and among two equals in order for them to function, uh, and they're both capable, one has to have authority over the other. This is true in every area of life, and this is where marriage gets so interesting. A lot of people look at Christianity, and there is this bum rap given on Christianity, and the bum rap is, is that Christianity is hard on women, that Christianity denigrates women, that Christianity depreciates women. None of that is true. If, if you look at the history of Christianity, and you look at the history of different countries, wherever Christianity has gone in the world, the status of women has gone up. Um, in India, a number of years ago, Rajiv Gandhi was the prime minister and he was assassinated. I remember seeing uh, a clip or two of his memorial service on one of the news channels. Uh, they had the classic Hindu ceremony, a, a simple wooden barge was constructed, a raft, if you will. His body was placed on it. It was covered in flowers. And after the appropriate words, uh, dry kindling was put all over that dry wooden raft and a torch was lit and it went up in flames and so did his body and his body was cremated. That's the traditional Hindu ceremony on the banks of the Ganges River in Calcutta, India. It's been that way in India for thousands and thousands of years, with one exception. Before Christianity came to India, the man would die, they would have the wooden raft, they would put his body on it, they would say the words, have the service, and then they would, you know, they had the flowers, uh, and then they would cover it in kindling wood, dried wood, but before they would put a torch to it, they would take his living wife and they would put her on it. It's called suti, S-U-T-T-E-E. -E. Why would they do that? Because they didn't believe Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn there with me. When we start talking about marriage, we've got to go to Genesis because marriage is a creation ordinance of God. And if you look at verse 26, then God said of chapter 1 of Genesis, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Uh, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Right out of the blocks, God says, men and women, male and female, are both made in my image. You read that they are to have dominion over the earth. Another thing that happens in India. Now, why would they put a living wife on the barge with a dead husband and light it? Because they didn't believe she was made in the image of God. She didn't have the equal worth that Christianity says that she has. Another thing that you have in India uh, in certain places of India, you've got cows, you've got monkeys that have free reign that go into civilized towns and civilized buildings and create incredible issues of hygiene and filth and disease. And there's not a thing you can do about it because they value those animals over people. 
And God says in the scripture that in verse 26, let the, let's make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth. Over, and you see, you think ideas don't matter? And oftentimes we hear about multiculturalism. That's a culture I don't want anything to do with. That's a religion because you see cultures bring religion, don't they? Well, one religion, one culture is as good as another. You hear in the American academic system, actually it's not. Not even close, you see. Because of fundamental creation ordinances that God put in place, male and female, he created them. Wherever Christianity goes, the status of women goes up because when Christianity came to India, one of the things that happened was that Christian evangelists preached the gospel, people were converted, and men started standing up and saying, we're not doing this anymore. We're not going to devalue women. The scriptures say this. Okay. Kind of wild stuff, isn't it? Turn with me, if you would, to... Uh, so, so there's never Ephesians 5. I didn't tell you where. Uh, I just felt like you could sense it. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. So right out of the blocks, God makes us in his image, male and female, and we're equal. But that doesn't mean that we're the same. Our world system says that in order for male and female to be equal, they must be the same, and we're not the same. That's absolute nonsense. But with the rise of feminism in the 60s, with Betty Frieden's book, The Feminine Mystique, which really was the start of feminism as we know it, this idea uh, was born, and we deal with it every day in our lives now, that, um, that in order for men and women to be equal, men and women have to be the same, and they are not the same. They're not the same on any level. Now, we have, we're made in his image. We have equal access to the Lord, the Bible says, um, as, as believers. But among equals, we're not the same. And we get ourselves in all kinds of difficulty when we try to preach sameness when we're not the same. We're not the same physically. We're not the same in terms of our uh, men don't go through a 28-day cycle that wives go through. And all the men said, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. <laughs> because you don't want to go through that. She goes through it. And it can be a very difficult process. You see? Um, and at a certain point in life, that'll change, and you'll go through menopause. <laughs> and you say, I'm not going through menopause. I think you are. She's going through it. She's taking you with her. <laughs> See? But it's a normal season of life, and God's instituted it. Okay. Now, what you have, so let's, as we talk about this issue of, we're talking about husbands and wives. Here's what I'm really talking about tonight. I'm talking about husbands and wives uh, living in harmony with each other, attempting to live in harmony, and get along as we go through just the dailiness of life and living out our responsibility and raising a family and trying to pay our bills and uh, 
just getting our responsibilities done in, re in regard to the family. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This is why I said weddings are easy, marriage is hard. Because so much of marriage is decision-making. So much of marriage is two different people who have two different views, who have um, wills of their own. And this is where it gets very, very interesting. Uh, you know, the NFL has gotten so big that my dad was offered a contract after World War II uh, to play for the Pittsburgh Steelers in 46. And he turned them down because, as you know, you, you can't make a living playing pro ball. <laughs> At least you couldn't in 46. Um, you just couldn't do it. But, man, it's all changed, hasn't it? Uh, and the NFL is everywhere. They're everywhere. They got their own network. They got jerseys. They got this. They got that. They got pink ribbons. They got, they got everything. Um, have you ever read the NFL translation of the Bible? Turn with me to Ephesians 5. You know, there's the KJV, the King James Version. There's the NASB, New American Standard Version. Uh, there is the ESV, English Standard Version, RSV, Revised Standard Version, which I don't recommend. Uh, there's the NIV, the New International Version. There's the NFL Version. Um, and it's interesting because when you get to Ephesians chapter 5 and you look at verse 22, I actually have a copy, one of the first copies of the NFL version of the New Testament. Here's how it reads. You guys at 522 of Ephesians? All right. Wide receivers, be subject to your own quarterbacks as to the Lord. For the quarterback is head of the wide receiver, just as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. All right, now let's time out right here. Before I get run out of town on a rail for heresy. Uh, I'm trying to make a point. And the point I'm trying to make is this, that when you read Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, uh, let's say this, it's not a real popular text when you read it just for what it says. And what does it say? It's about marriage. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. And you're saying, yeah, but I thought you said that both male and female are made in the image of God. Well, they are. But see, God says in order for a husband and wife to equals to function in the divine ordinance and institution of marriage, he appoints one to leadership and the other one to follow the lead. Now, this gets really interesting. So what I want you to do tonight after Bible study is go home, sit down with your wife, and read this verse with her before you go to sleep. She'll love it. <laughs> There'll be a little bit of a reaction. Even among Christian women, they kind of just, they get a little tight. They, they, you're going to get a little response on this. Why? 
Well, one reason is it's been abused. That's probably the main reason, you see. Um, you, have a, you, have a, you have a principle here among equals that in order for a marriage to function, God appoints one as the head. They're both equal. They're both made in his image. God appoints one as the head and the other is to follow their leadership. Now, I want to tell you something. Human relationships cannot exist without this principle. That's why I read the NFL version that I made up that doesn't exist. Because you take, um, well, in here, I came up with a principle called the Montana Rice Principle. And I did it to tweak everybody who likes the Cowboys. Um, I didn't do it for that reason. But, you know, I lived in California, and I remember when the 49ers finally got good and finally beat the Cowboys, and Dwight Clark finally made the catch from Montana. And, I mean, it, it was terrible for a long, long time if you were a 49er fan. And then finally they turned it around. And for a long time... The best combination of football was Montana to Rice. And, you know, you look down through the different years of football, and there's always a quarterback who's got a receiver, and they're just unconscious. And that's always fun to watch. Uh, I talked about the Montana Rice principle in here. And working off Ephesians 5, because when, when you get 11 guys in a huddle, You've got 11 guys that want to win. You've got 11 guys that have strong wills and strong minds, and they want to win that game. And they've all got opinions. And if they all get into that huddle and start expressing their opinions, you've got absolute chaos. So somebody has to be in leadership. And in a huddle, if you don't have leadership, you're going to have chaos, and you're going to have 11 different guys fighting and talking all this. So you can't have that. So when it comes to a huddle, the quarterback has been appointed to the position of headship, you see. Now, how does, you say, well, how does that work out? Well, does it mean that if, if Rice, you know, he can't come back and ever give his opinion? Well, what may happen at a certain point, he, he may tell Montana, he goes, listen, that, quarter, that cornerback bites every time I do that inside move. So Montana keeps that in his head, and a few plays later, he has, a, he, he has them go in and then go to the post, and they score. Why would you not take that input? You see, in any area of life, but, but ultimately, someone's got to say in, in the huddle, listen, here's what we're going to do. Because at some point, someone's got to make a decision because the clock is running. Um, where you work. Among equals, uh, you've got people above you and you've got people under you, do you not? So any company has got a, uh, you say, well, I'm an executive vice president. Great. But you're under the president. You see, the president's under the board. I was uh, in court this past week. Uh, I got pulled over. And... You know, you never know how long you're going to be in there. So I'm, I'm actually reading my Bible in court, just doing my, some, catching up with some stuff. And they finally called my name. And as I got up to walk up to the judge, um, 
he said, uh, do you need to talk to the prosecutor? Or are you disputing the charge? And I said, no, Your Honor, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. And he kind of laughed, and I, he said, well, come on up. And, and I, I just said, yeah, I said I was absolutely guilty. And, because uh, I was on a cell phone in a school zone. And I was also going over the speed limit. But the officer didn't tag me for that. He could have really nailed me, he didn't. Because uh, I started crying and weeping. And <laughs> it worked. Anyway. But I, I said, no, no, I'm guilty. I want to plead guilty. And he said, well, look, he said, now, he said, well, you're a little late for deferred adjudication. He goes, well, we could do that. I said, man, that'd be great. I'll just pay the fine. And he said, if you're clear for 90 days, and then go on your record. I said, great. And then we, he's doing the paperwork. And we were just kind of, you know. And he was a pretty sharp guy. And at one point, suddenly, we had a little discussion going on. And uh, I told him about, I said, I'll tell you the truth. I actually was going over the speed limit. And he could have nailed me on that, and he didn't. He said, he's a pretty good officer. He said, he's, he's really one of our best. And I said, I can see that. And I said, yeah, I think that's what the Bible calls mercy and not justice. And he laughed, and he said something. Then he said, well, we're all under authority, aren't we? I said, yeah, we are. We all answer to somebody. Just a little give and take. And I'd been sitting there for about 20 minutes, and I watched him handle that courtroom. And he was such a good judge. He was such a good leader. Didn't embarrass anybody. He had a couple kids that were kind of just young and stupid. And one of them got a little out of line, and so he, you know, he drew a line with him. Not inappropriate. But with others, he listened. The guy just, there was a good atmosphere in that courtroom. Uh, his power hadn't gone to his head. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes when people are given authority, it goes to their head and they can't handle it. And this is where we get into problems. See, this is what happens in a marriage. When we move as husbands who have been given authority, when we move from authority to authoritarianism, what we're watching in our country right now is not proper authority. We're watching authoritarianism. That's what we're watching. It's tyrannical. It is contrary to the word of God. You see. And when we have people in leadership who have been influenced, you know, it's always good to do some homework on different individuals. You can find out things about them. You can find out what they read. You can find out who they hang around with. You can, even if they try to cover it up, you can find certain things because inevitably something's going to come out somewhere. Oh, I love this book. Well, one of the books that seems to be really high among certain members of the of the uh, of the group <laughs> is a book by Saul Alinsky called Rules for Radicals. 
If you look at that book, the book is dedicated to Satan. That'll give you a tip. Who was the ultimate revolutionary? Just fascinating. That's why in Ephesians 6.10, it says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We often think it is against people. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There are unseen powers behind certain flesh and blood individuals, you see. Uh, 13, therefore take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God and with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf Paul goes on and on and on his point is we're in spiritual battle and I will say this to you what the enemy wants to do is that he wants to take God's plan for a Christian family, for a Christian marriage, and he wants to um, ambush it. He wants to get it out of balance. He wants to uh, get it out of alignment with God's word in the, in the husband and wife relationship. And when a husband, when a husband moves from authority to authoritarianism, you got a problem. You see? Most women I have met and interacted with who are strong feminists have been deeply hurt by a significant man in their life. They were wounded. They were taken advantage of. They uh, saw uh, a treatment of themselves or of their mother by the husband, by the father. And what it did, it just did havoc in their lives uh, I think I told you one time about the friend of my daughter when they were in middle school. And I came down the stairs one day and there was a group of middle school girls and Mary was talking to one of the moms and they were going somewhere. As I came out, I just waved to everybody and I saw this one little girl I'd never seen before and she was really out of place with all the other little girls there in Coppell. Um, she was dressed in all black, this kind of goth look and jet black dyed hair and black fingernails and black from head to toe and just really hard looking. And when they all left with the other mom, I, Mary walked in and I said, hey, who was that one little girl? And she said, oh, you know, and she gave me her name. And I said, no, 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 I'm talking about the little girl in black. She goes, no, that's her. I said, that's, she goes, yeah. I said, what happened to her? And then she proceeded to tell me that just a few weeks before her father had come home and announced at dinner to the mother and the four kids that he had fallen in love with another woman and was packing his things that night and leaving. And he did. 
Did I mention he was a pastor of a church? He killed that little girl. He killed that family. That little girl was in black because she was in grief. And later, I remember Rachel or Mary telling me a statement that she made because the whole ambition of her life, and she became very successful and a great student and you know, went all the way to the top. Uh, the statement she made is that what motivated her that she would never ever again be in a place of dependence or trust upon a man as long as she lived. Can you blame her? No. You can't blame her. Um, let's go to 1 Samuel 25. I got a hustle here. 1 Samuel 25. You know, even at Ms. Magazine, Ms. Magazine is the flagship magazine of the feminist movement. And one of the things that they are staunchly against is the idea that the husband would be head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church. They would say all kinds of terrible things come out of that. And, you know, they fight for equality and women's rights. And when they, when they say in marriage, there's absolute equality across the board. One is not above the other. This has drifted into... Uh, evangelical Christianity, we call it egalitarianism, where the husband is not the head of the wife. They reinterpret the word head to mean source, which it doesn't mean. But they'll tell you it means source, like the source of a river or something. Uh, Wayne Grudem, great theologian, actually researched every usage of that word translated head at Oxford on a sabbatical. It was like over 2,000 times. He looked it up in his context in all of literature. Uh, I, think, I think he found one or at the most two instances, and I think it was one, where it ever did not mean head, it meant source. Yet you have those who say, no, it means source. Well, it doesn't mean source, it means head. Um, at Ms. Magazine, so they would be opposed to the husband being head of the wife. They don't like that. Why? Because of the abuse that's taken place. A guy has become an authoritarian. Um, but I find it interesting that even at Ms. Magazine, and I did this one time, I bought a copy, and I opened it up a couple pages into the masthead. And it tells you all the people that work on the magazine. And it went from top to bottom. It said executive editor. And then it said managing editor. And then it said associate editor. And then it had editorial interns. And you know what they had listed at uh, Ms. Magazine? They had a hierarchy of relationships, the very thing they preach against in marriage. But in order to get a magazine out on time, on schedule, among equals, someone's got to be in charge. So the very thing they're against, they actually incorporate. Because they couldn't get a magazine out on time, just like you can't have 11 guys calling plays in the huddle Someone, ultimately, the buck has to stop somewhere. Does it not? Now, does this mean there's no interaction? It doesn't mean that. But it means that if you're working on a 40-second clock, you got X amount of time. Uh, you're telling me you can beat that guy if you go in and then go out? Okay, that's good information. That takes three seconds. But if I got 11 guys telling me all kinds of things every time we're in that huddle, you're not going to get anything done. You're not even going to get playoff. 
Am I making sense? They're making all kinds of, this is just life. This is how we function in life. Among equals, someone is appointed as head. We're all under authority. We're, we're all, we all give an account. Okay. So uh, 1 Samuel 25, 25. Now, let's, I, I want to give you an example of what I would call, this is what makes it difficult in marriage. Um, and I want to give you an example of the wrong kind of man and the wrong kind of woman. Um, in 1 Samuel 25, you have a man named uh, Nabal. And he was married to a woman by the name of Abigail, who later, after his death, became one of the wives of David. And what David and his men were doing, they were looking over all of his sheep. Nabal was a very wealthy man. Uh, if you look at 25.2, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. His man, the man's name was Nabal. His wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. The man was harsh and evil in his dealings. He was a Calebite. Uh, David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. What was happening is that David and his mighty men, they were in the area, and they actually were kind of protecting Nabal's sheep as they were spread out all over the mountainsides and all that and kind of doing a service for him. And, uh, you know, at night when they were on watch, okay, all right, that's the whole story. I'm not going to read it all. At a certain point, David asked for him to help out with provisions for his men and Nabal says, hey, who are you? I don't know anything about you. I'm not doing anything. Although David and his guys had sacrificed on his behalf. And so David, he hadn't had apparently much sleep. And he snaps and he says to the guys, go strap on your swords. We're going to go kill this sucker. Abigail finds out about it. And she tells the servants, hey, you know, go get the dates and the prunes and the kumquats, whatever else we got around here whatever we eat here, and, and let's go meet David's man. And she shows up, David's coming, he's got blood in his eye, and here comes this beautiful woman, and she stops David, and 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. Let your maidservant speak to you. Listen to the words of your servant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. All right, put that together. He's a worthless man. And then you go back to verse 2, actually verse 3, and it says the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he, uh, he was of the tribe of Caleb. Caleb was a godly man, but here's a descendant of Caleb who wasn't a godly man. Uh, this guy's a worthless man. This guy would fit what the book of Proverbs calls a fool. He loved money. He was harsh. He was not a giver. He was not generous. The Bible says he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. He would have nothing to do with that. And he would have lost his life if it hadn't been for this intelligent, godly woman. Taking appropriate steps in order to save the guy's life. OK. Um, I, I want to submit to you that when a guy. Does not follow carefully God's pattern for the family as a husband, he becomes a worthless man. We, we mentioned in here before that the whole idea of husbandry means to take care. Um, there's a major in animal husbandry. 
Animal husbandry is the breeding and care of animals. So to be a husband, to husband is to take care. To husband is not to take advantage. To, to husband is not to take. To husband is not to take off. To husband is to take care. Now, I talked briefly about authoritarianism. This is what we're watching happening in our country. Uh, was it Lord Acton that says absolute power corrupts? Absolutely. We're watching that before our eyes. You see. Because somehow we got someone taking power that doesn't belong to them and doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon. But God deals with that in the book of Proverbs. I don't have time to give you the verses. But uh, a lawless man is going to deal with that. Because shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Oh yeah, he will. Um, Let me see if I can find this. When a guy gets authoritarian, uh, when a guy gets drunk on his own power, here's, here's what happens. Uh, and, and, I, and, and I had a story in Point Man about two uh, airline pilots. And anyway, they crashed because they were just talking and talking about the, the flight attendants and how good they looked. And they had the flight recording on. And there was snow and ice and everything. And they never de-iced the plane. They just took off, and this flight winds up on the side of a mountain. Uh, sometimes you have a situation where you have captains who are very headstrong, and they don't want any input from anybody. That's foolish. Is it not? You've, have you not worked for guys? Let me ask you this. Who's the best boss you've ever worked for? I'll tell you what, he wasn't authoritarian. The best boss you ever worked for, his leadership style was in alignment with what Jesus said about leadership. If you read Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, he talked about companies that were good, were starting to decline, and they suddenly got great, and he found six principles. It's an interesting book. Collins, to my knowledge, is not a Christian, but he observed these companies, and five out of the six principles, as I recall, there were six, five out of the six, or four out of the five, or whatever it was, are biblical principles, which took them from good to great. And the first one all had to do with the guy at the top, the CEO. And you know what he said about all these guys who took companies from good that were declining to great? Basically what he said, in essence, and at a certain point, he said it was interesting how many of these guys were evangelical Christians. And the ones who weren't were following leadership principles that Jesus laid down, that if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. They were servant leaders. They were leaders, but they weren't in it for themselves. They didn't think themselves above the law. They felt that they were there to serve and to help that company be productive and get a profit and provide a service. But they weren't in to get their name in the paper. Uh, They weren't given sound bites. They were guys who flew under the radar. They were concerned about their people and putting out the best possible product that they could do. They were servant leaders. Fascinating. 
The best boss that you've ever worked for was that kind of man, whether or not he knew Christ. And I'll tell you something, if he didn't know Christ, somebody in his family lineage did know Christ and he was living off the spiritual capital, either he was grandpa or his great grandpa or maybe his dad. That's how it works. Uh, sometimes guys in leadership, nobody can tell them they don't want to hear anything from anybody. That's a lousy leader. Is it not? That's foolish. So I wrote this. Uh, this problem can occur in a marriage 747 as well as in a 747. If a pilot, uh, if a captain is not open to, to good information, a high control husband can easily develop the same attitude that some captains have adopted. And it's not all captains. You know that uh, he's going to run the home his way and the way he wants. He doesn't want suggestions from anyone, especially his wife. After all, he may think, according to scripture, it's her job to submit to his authority. That's authoritarianism. This is one reason that Christian marriages are going down in flames all over America. If a husband has a distorted view of what the scripture means by submission, he can intimidate his wife to the point that she'll be afraid to even speak up when his leadership is clearly off base. He's getting ready to fly straight into the side of a mountain, but she's too afraid of how he'll react if she says something. Well, you're to submit to me. The Bible never says that a wife is to submit to a husband who's in sin. You don't follow him into sin. You see, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A wife's a friend. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, most wives want their husbands to win. But sometimes he won't listen to her. Why would you not listen to her? She should just follow my lead. Not if you're going off a cliff, she shouldn't. She ought to be able to say something. But if you're such an intimidator and you're such a high control guy, I got a letter about 10 years ago from a lady. My husband went to your conference and I got to tell you, ever since he's been at your conference, he has been the most difficult man to live with. And what happened was the guy apparently was very passive and not giving any leadership. Well, he thought he suddenly had to become, he became an authoritarian. And she said, is this what you teach? It's not what I teach. And he wasn't listening. You see? Um, I, I, I will get letters from wives. You know, my, my husband uh, does not allow me to make any decisions. He doesn't allow me to make any input. Uh, he makes all the decisions about the children, even how I nurse a baby, all this. I mean, that's not leadership. That's not leadership. That's not even in the scriptures. Uh, in the Bible, the woman was given to the man as a helpmate. But some guys are so high control, they won't even let her help. Oh, I know better than you about breastfeeding. You don't know snot about breastfeeding. <laughs> or this or that. To be a leader doesn't mean that you make every decision and that you're in charge of everything. Good leaders delegate. Good leaders, you've got gifts, your wife's got gifts, she's got skills, you've got skills, so who handles the money? Who should handle it? Well, the husband should handle the money because he's the best. What if she's better with money than you are? What if she's better with details and putting stuff in quicken than you are? Well, why don't you have her do it? Then you two of you go over it when you need to go over it, you know, every week or two weeks, whatever the heck you do. If she's better at that stuff, why wouldn't she do it? 
smart, gifted, intelligent woman that God has given gifts, why wouldn't you thank God for the gifts instead of being intimidated that you've got to do it all? You can't do it all. That's not, that's not leadership. That's just being a high-control authoritarian. That's lousy leadership is what that is. All right, let's talk about women. In Proverbs, you've got what's called the contentious woman. Now, some of you guys are married to contentious women. Not everybody. If you're married to a contentious woman, would you stand? <laughs> Just a little humor for tonight. But there are contentious women. Why is your wife contentious? I don't know. Look at her background. There could be some reason she's contentious. Maybe she's been deeply hurt. Maybe she's been deeply wounded. Maybe because of her relationship with her father, she can't trust any man, let alone you. I don't know. But I'm saying the fact of the matter is some women are more difficult to live with than others. So if you look at Proverbs 19, and not every guy in here has a contentious woman. But if you do, it's hard. If you do, it's very, very difficult uh, Proverbs 19, 13 says, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Uh, look at uh, Proverbs 21, 9. It is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. A contentious woman is critical, is argumentative. You can never please her. She is always unhappy. Nothing seems to work. Nothing is good enough. As a friend of mine once told me, the best I can do with my wife is get to zero. I've never been plus 10 in my whole marriage. I'm usually minus 25. I'm usually minus 35. But the best I can do is zero. Now, his wife had been greatly wounded as a young woman in her home. Uh, so you got worthless men and you got contentious women. If if you're married to a contentious woman, it's very, very difficult to have peace and harmony in the home. Let's just be honest. Now, now look it. Before you, you start doing your analysis and immediately go to your wife and adding up all the reasons that she is a contentious woman, you spend as much time on yourself before you go to her. Okay? Check out yourself. Check out your heart. I have a guy who emails me frequently who wants to write a book on marriage. In fact, he's writing a book on marriage. He wants me to help him get it published. I wouldn't help this guy uh, publish a book on marriage if I could. He's one of the worst husbands I've ever met in my life. I'm dead serious. And he thinks he's one of the best. He can, quote, he can quote chapters and chapters of the Bible. He's unbelievable. Knows the original languages. He's hell to live with. Ask anybody in his family. But he thinks he's great. He thinks he's a spiritual leader. I think he's pretty close to worthless. Anyone who tries to talk with him 
is shut down. He's not a teachable man. There are other verses on the contentious woman. Uh, let's, let's get going. My gosh. Uh, let's go to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. We'll wrap this up. So, so how do you work this out in a marriage? Um, as you go in the 1 Peter 3, go to 1 Peter 3. You thought I was going to say go somewhere else. But I'll, I do have something else, but I'm going to hold it. Uh, you know, the scripture is so practical. So yesterday, Mary and I were driving home, went to order the health club. We're driving back, and in five minutes, she gives me three different directions on which way to turn. And the third direction, that was it. I snapped. I, I just lost it. I said, hey, look it. Don't tell me again how to drive this car. You just ticked me off. She told me three times. I'm still hacked off. I was trying to get home and study this passage on marriage. <laughs> so in 1 Peter 3, in verse 1 through 6, he talks to wives. You know what he basically says there? That wives are to be careful about their behavior. Uh, he talks about if they have a husband who's not a believer that worships idols, they're not to follow him in worshiping idols. But they're as best they can to win him with their behavior. Uh, they're to be careful about their dress and their appearance, not that they don't give attention to it, but they're not excessive. They're not at Nordstrom seven days a week or Saks or Neiman's. There's more to life than that, although, you, you know, just keep it in balance. That's what it's saying. They're, they're, they're to respect their husband. She called Abraham Lord. You might go home tonight and just tell your wife, hey, you know, it's, she called him Lord. Why don't you call me Lord? That's not going to work either. But the idea behind that is it was a term that she came up with on her own of respect. That's all. She respected him. Why? Because of how he lived. Was he perfect? No, but she loved him and respected him. That's a good thing. And then the husbands, you husbands likewise, seven, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. She's physically weaker than you are. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Grant her honor. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. See, I think we grant our wives honor when we listen, when we'll listen to their viewpoint, because a lot of times my wife will see things that I don't see. Why would I not listen to her? You see. And usually she's got good input. Now, I'll tell you what had to happen. Last night after dinner, I had to circle around and say, Mary, look it, I don't know. I just snapped. She said, well, you know what? I shouldn't be telling you how to drive. And I said, that dang right you shouldn't be telling me how to drive. <laughs> she knew, and she said, Steve, I shouldn't have done that. And see, her mind just works. I mean, she's not, she doesn't mean, I know her well enough, she doesn't mean a thing by that. And I ought to know that after 37 years. 
She's just, and there have been times I've missed a turn. I have missed a turn. She didn't want me to miss the turn. So what do we do? Well, I got to circle back around and let's get this right. That's my job. See what I'm saying? Okay. Why would I not listen to her perspective? Why would I not treat her with intelligence and listen to her viewpoint? Gifted, smart, intelligent woman. Uh, Verse 8, to sum up, what? Marriage. He says, let all be harmonious. You know what harmony is in a marriage? You know what harmony is, period? It's two different people singing two different parts. You can't have harmony if they're doing the same thing. You say, well, she's very different. Oh, well, then you can have harmony. Because without, without difference, you can't have harmony. So what do we do? We learn to live in harmony, and we got to work our stuff out. As we're going through life and making the decisions of life, let it all be harmonious, sympathetic. Sympathy. Sympathy. That's, that's getting to know her. And, and stepping back and saying, now what's really going on in her heart? And why, why is she that way sometimes? And it, it's just thinking it through. And it's being sympathetic. It's cutting her some slack. You see? Um, brotherly. What's brother? Brothers are equals. It's viewing her as an equal. Yeah. Yeah. Now God's given you. Hey, if push comes to shove, Mary and I talk things through. Listen, 90% of the decisions we make, we're on the same page. 99%. Every once in a while, we'll hit an impasse, and a decision has to be made, and a buck stops with me. And Mary has said to me, Steve, you know what? Obviously, we've got to make a decision. You make the call, I'll support you. Because that's my call. That's my job. I've been appointed that position. And we've had a lot of interaction. But if it's got to be made, it's got to be made, and I've got to make it. Okay. Kind-hearted. Proverbs says, wrap truth and kindness around your neck. I tend to wrap truth around my neck and leave off the kindness. But I'm to be kind-hearted. I've got to watch my mouth. I've got to watch my tongue. I've got to watch my razor blade responses. Okay? Humble in spirit. You know what this means? When you screw up, go ask forgiveness. If you're wrong, say you're wrong. And this is all in the context of marriage. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. I've told you about Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. They did not get along. They had a feud going on for years. They were always in the same social situations. One time they were at a state dinner. She looked across the table to him and said very in a very sophisticated way, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I believe I would poison your tea without missing a beat. He said, my dear wife, my dear lady, if you were my wife, I would drink it. (laughs) That's returning evil for evil or insult for insult. That's what you don't do, but you give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. One who desires life to see good days must keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. This is in marriage. This is in marriage. Do we get this right? No. 
We want to get it right. If you don't remember anything else out of this tonight, remember two words out of Ephesians 5. If you don't remember anything else, remember just as. If you're in a situation and you're not quite sure what to do as a husband, can I give you a suggestion? Just as. What do you mean just as? I'm not sure how I should respond. Just as. Just as what? Just as Christ loves the church. You take your cues from Jesus. He didn't take advantage of people. He didn't take off from people. He didn't take from people. He served people. Well, it's very hard for me to forgive. Well, if he can forgive you, you can forgive her. You do it just as Jesus. Am I making? Yeah. He's our model. We fix our eyes on Jesus and we stay the course. And we're growing. We're growing slowly, but we're growing. Let's pray. Help us, Father. This is real life. Decisions have to be made every day. Sometimes one of us is tired. Sometimes one of us is angry about something from last week. Sometimes there's pressure at work. We haven't told her about it. She doesn't know about it. There's all this stuff. It gets so complicated. Help us to be quick to forgive. Help us to be quick to be kind. When we're not, help us to be quick to be humbled and to ask forgiveness. Protect our homes. Protect our hearts. Don't let us think higher of ourselves than we should. Mature us. Thank you for your patience with us. Protect our marriages. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.